Honestly, the Texas Horned Lizard, they used to be all over and seeing them disappear from the landscape. It's been an amazing realization of what habitat destruction and development and what we as the human race are doing to the planet. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up Podcast. Yeah. I like forget how big it gets when it's just us. It feels very (laughs) zoomed in. Too zoomed into our faces here. Well, audio version doesn't know what we're talking about, but you can go to Mm portcitypythons.com and you can check out. We have some available substrates, isopods, as well as, uh, and that's substrates for isopods, as well as reptiles, some uh, cocoa bedding and you don't need to mess with those blocks anymore you don't need to chip away at blocks or pour water in there and wait for it to seep in and uh i hate that i hate breaking apart the blocks why do they sell it that way if uh, i think it's just really convenient to ship um also i mean i'm sure during the process there must be some type of advantage i should ask I, I mean, there has to be out. something, um, yeah. because like who, like you said, who wants to, you know, water it and sift through it and break it up and everything. Not I. Um, also, we have. Oh wait, I don't know. Did you put the little thingies on the website? <laughs> what are you talking about? The shakers. Oh yeah, we do have some um, isopod calcium as well as some springtail food. So, do isopods need calcium, or is it just an added? benefit yes so isopods in order to properly molt they do need calcium and to make a good strong exoskeleton so yeah that's it's essential and some people and uh, some species will readily forage on it some will you know eat a cuddle bone or cut off some limestone so uh and some are less or seem to need less calcium or seem to forage less on it. But uh, our substrate also has some calcium in it. So um, what's good about the substrate is the fact that, um, like Russ was talking last week, it's the the cocoa acidifies, but we have the um, the calcium in there, which actually neutralizes the, uh, the acids. So you won't get that acid- acidification of the soils. So I'm actually doing that now in the Amazon enclosure that I am, uh, that I'm putting together. So yeah. So did... if you wonder, if you look at Joe's hands, <laughs> he did not stick his hands in dirt for no reason. Or I didn't wipe with my left hand. Um, it's both hands. Yeah. Yeah. It's both hands. But yeah, I was playing with some silicone and putting some cocoa fiber up on the sides of the Amazon enclosure and uh, missing up a substrate of like different cocoa and sphagnum and charcoal and even some wood and stuff like that. And also putting the uh, calcium carbonate in it to see if I can neutralize it because I had a problem with it getting Acidif- uh, yeah. <laughs> Acidic. <laughs> so in retrospect, should you have worn gloves? In retrospect, I did wear gloves, but the only thing <laughs> wait, I, wait, wore, wait, wait, I wore wait. one glove. So then how is it on both hands? Well, I guess it's more on one hand. Than the other. Well, you know, I took off the glove and then, you know, after like the third or fourth time getting gloves on and off, I was just kind of like, screw it. How'd you have to take it off? Well, because I needed to wait for the silicone to cure. So I did the back wall and then I put 
a bunch of the cocoa on there, let that cure for like, you know, about a half hour. And then I flipped it over and I did the side, let that cure for about a half hour, flipped it to the other side, let that cure for about a half hour. So, um, so I had to do it four times because I also needed to go back and do some patchwork. And, uh, even now I'm sure I'm going to turn it up right. And there's going to be some, uh, there's going to be some spots that I miss. It's kind of frustrating because the, the back I did with the great stuff where you put the great stuff expanding foam and then it expands and then you need to saw it down and then it gives it a textured, you know, background to it. And then you got to kind of get all those little nooks kind and crannies filled yeah. with uh, silicone. So it's kind of a pain. And then also I took a bunch of rope and I put that in silicone as well, which you know, I really had to lather it on with my hands. That's part of why it got real nasty. <laughs> and then I dumped it into the cocoa core and now it looks like a jungle vine. So instead of having these things that were functional, but not exactly pretty for pipe. the Amazon. Yeah. So I had some like PVC netting up, like you'd see in some gardens on the, uh, on the old enclosure, I guess I'm going to say. And now I'm going to have some like jungle vine, some more naturalistic stuff. Uh, still have the same plants. There's going to be the Chinese evergreen, which is really cool. And it's actually doing decent despite how ignorant I was with the substrate the first time around as well as some pothos. So I'm excited to finally get that done because I've been talking about it for a little while. And then next up is the uh, olive python. So like, is it going to be twice as heavy now? The ATB enclosure? No, you, no, not necessarily. No, it's not super, you didn't add much. No, weight. I mean, that foam is like, oh, okay. it's so light. It's pretty light. Yeah. Okay. As well as the, the cocoa. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to coat uh, the it's side. Right. It's just a very thin layer. I mean, only a thin layer will really stick to it. So that's not a big deal. But there's going to be, you know, three inches of substrate, which is significant, but that's not any but different that's no than factor what it was Dan said now the ATB is going to find a way to shit on the walls. <laughs> like Now <laughs> well, that you made it nice and pretty in there, it's going to expand its shit area. Well, but the isopods are supposed to... Are yeah. Gonna, yeah. Well, the thing is, they don't know. I don't, I don't think they're going to be able to climb any walls. They're not oh, exactly right. athletic. We'll see no. what happens in there. Maybe it'll decay and then it'll fall off. And I don't know. It really doesn't. He likes that to much. he likes to go to the bathroom in the water bowl, and and usually it's like half in the water bowl, half outside of it, just outside of it. So it makes it really easy to spot clean. But maybe now I'm going to do a lot more cleanup crew before I didn't have any cleanup crew in there because I just wanted to see if I could do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just in general. But now that I'm more. Uh, I also have a bioactive enclosure going for the emery rat snake that we got from Tony from Selective Scales upstairs. So, and I've had powder oranges going in those as well as a lot of springtails, and uh, that's been going okay. So, that first experiment is uh, successful. Is successful. Okay, so if anyone has any suggestions on experimenting getting this shit off his hands, because <laughs> I'm not letting him in our bed with his hands looking like that please let us know um also sorry to our guests that we have done the longest intro ever <laughs> um we just you did a lot today um yeah. other than that like you said t-shirts available isopods available all that stuff uh, we'll be in new orleans um this weekend for the herp trot tile show yes. catch us there let's introduce our guest Yes, so today we have, you may know him from Rise Against Rattlesnake Roundups as well as his YouTube channel. Um, our guest today is Todd Autry. Todd, welcome to the show. 
Hello, everyone. It's it's really an honor to be here today with you guys. Uh, how you how you guys doing up there? We're doing great. Seeing some signs of spring, which makes it a little bit better. We're having we're having snakes and frogs and things show up around here, which is pretty good for us in the first of March. So we'll take it. Yeah, I mean so. that's that's great. So you're in Oklahoma, correct? Correct, I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you also you do a bunch of field herping, or kind of like we were talking before, snakes just kind of show up on your front lawn, and you uh, you make some YouTube videos about them. You know, it's a funny story. Um, we have a development next door to us, and sadly, the this horse pasture that's been there for a hundred years is getting you know constructed into a new neighborhood. And so all these really neat snakes that you never see are coming passing through my neighborhood on their way, um, you know, looking for shelter. And so I try to catch them and release them where I can. But we started doing some videos of some of those as they popped up. And, you know, for the life of me, I can never find an eastern hog nose. So just never be out there when the conditions were right. And like my neighbors, like calls me, she's three houses down. She has one on her front porch. And I'm just like, she's like, are you going to kill it? I'm like, heck no, I'm not going to kill it. I've tried for three years to find one of these. You know, it's, uh, it's just kind of been, it's kind of been a riot, but um, I do have some other sites that I film at and um, I'm trying to do predominantly Oklahoma snakes and I've got some pretty good den sites that I have access to. I know the landowners and like, I'm not giving out those spots. No, you cannot go with me. Sorry. It's just kind of the way that is, but um, it's enabling me to get some really good footage and I've got a couple of, you know, a couple of pet videos in there thrown in to mix things up. I just did a Mexican black king snake video. So that's one of the few pets that I have left. Um, just because I've kind of shifted over to field herping versus keeping. And um, the channel's has taken off pretty good. I'd like it to be doing better, but you know, these, these things take time. So, um, you know, I definitely appreciate all the help and support you guys have given me along the way, Joe. You've helped me edit some files and things, and um, I know you're a busy man and didn't have a lot of time. So um, I definitely my hats off to you. No, I mean, I thank you just for um, basically the first time I met you is probably not met you in person over the Internet. <laughs> but that seems like that's how we know. I feel like we need another word home. for that. Like. Something that's like not met, but I guess just to over talk the internet. To you. And, uh, <laughs> and it's like you <laughs> and you didn't know, you know, who we were or anything like that, and you were always super supportive of us. So I really appreciate that. Well, man, I um, I appreciate you having the the guts to go and do what you did. You did things that you know a lot of people say they can never do and don't ever do, and I think we need more reptile people to go do those things. So, you know, I definitely am a fan. I, I do follow your channel. I don't comment on everything because it's like I get I start getting these spam alerts. You know, it's like <laughs> I come in on 20 videos in one hour. Next thing you know, it's like people are turning me in or the Google bots are getting ready to assassinate me. It's just, you know, that goes. But I definitely am a big fan of your channel. And um, so it's really, really cool being here. Yeah, I appreciate it. And and you obviously have, you know, or you have for a while had an interest in just filming animals. And it seems like you just like to film them naturally how they are. Yeah, that's um, definitely, definitely what I, what I kind of like to do in my videos today. 
um, I like to film, you know, I like to film a copperhead crossing the road or a rattlesnake, you know, retreating back under a log and just kind of show the animal as it is. I don't want to be in the picture. I've got friends who are YouTube coach type people who tell me you have to do some narration. You have to put your face in there. You have to do this. And I'm just like, uh, you know, cause I mean, who wants to look at me? I, I mean, would you rather look at me or would you rather look at a rattlesnake? And if you say you'd rather look at me, then I'm going to worry about you. <laughs> rattlesnake any day. They're just far cooler. I mean, the day I can inject a venomous bite and kill you, I mean, then maybe we're rocking. But um, yeah, it's just, I like filming things natural and, and away and getting away from the animal, not being close to them. Sometimes I do include some of that. But I don't want to, you know, freehandle a cotton mouth or, you know, even get a hook on one. As I, I try to keep that to a minimum. Sometimes it becomes necessary. But, right. you know, so. You always wish we had like a 10-foot camera zoom that still kept perfect focus and everything like that with field herping. Right. And actually, I've, I've, I've built something that's kind of like that that helps me. People are asking me how I get these shots, and I'm like, well, you know, I, I have a, a rig, and, you know, if you send $20 to my PayPal, I will send you a picture of it. <laughs> um, truth is, I stole the idea from someone else, so I really shouldn't be like that, but, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of low like that, Jeff, you know? <laughs> and what's kind of, do you have any type of protocol when you come across a venomous snake and you want to film it? Don't get bit. Um, That's great. Um, you know, I um, I started filming. I started doing video uh, probably twelve years ago, and it and it was the reason I was doing it was to document things going on at roundups. Um, anybody who knows me knows that's my history. Knows that's my past. Um, before that, I was into photography, and I'm talking back before digital cameras, back when you had to load the thirty-five millimeter film in like a Pentax K1000, you point, shoot, and focus. Um, I never really thought about doing video. And um, people were telling me, well, we got to start getting some of this on video. And I bought my first camera, which was a Sony Bloggy. Do you remember those? No. That is before my camera time. Google it, because there's still a few floating around on Amazon. It looks like your basic iPhone but it was this really nick, wicked little 1080p camera. And we that's what we shot some of our first footage in Oklahoma with at like um, the Apache Roundup and the, I think the Warica Roundup. And then it just kind of evolved from there. And then, I, you know, after a while, it kind of, this is getting depressing and we've got enough of this footage. So let's just go field herping. And so what really got you, I guess we didn't answer, or we didn't ask this in the beginning, what really got you interested in reptiles in the first place? You know, I, I grew up around reptiles. Um, I live in a suburb, I, well, I grew up in a suburban area of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it's called Broken Arrow. And the amount of development just in the last 40 years has been amazing. We had a soccer field next to my grandmother's house. And in the soccer field, there would be Texas horn lizards by the dozens. I mean, these things were all over Oklahoma in the 1970s. But then you go over to the creek and you find Graham's crayfish snakes, ribbon snakes, um, you know, things like that. 
uh, common snapping turtles. So you had this wide biodiversity in like a quarter square mile. You had like desert over here and, and you know, creek, lake area over here. And I just grew up around them and my grandmother knew about them and she grew up in the Ozark Mountains herself. And um, I think that woman would kill a bear with her bare hands and just not think twice. She's one of those people not scared of anything. And so she was always showing me, you know, hold them behind the head and this is how you tell which ones are poisonous and, you know, things like that. And then they, I started reading before I went to school and they would buy me snake books or get snake books from the library. So that kind of stuff and then going out in the backyard and playing with them, it was just, it was just an amazing childhood. Sometimes I wish I could go back. So when was your first time uh, heading a snake like that? How old were you? Um, eight. Ooh, seven, eight. <laughs> okay. Um, I remember, I remember I found a little decays brown snake and I had, um, I had described it. I called the local zoo, zoo curator on the phone. Wait, at about, eight? Yeah, at eight. <laughs> and the accessibility of that guy, I mean, <laughs> right. is impressive also. Well, they would, that's back when they would answer the phones and take your questions. I didn't but, know um, so thing. was that like an actual well, thing? Like anyone could call it the zoo? Yeah, you just call the zoo and ask for the reptile department. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pushy. I mean. <laughs> Even at eight. <laughs> Even today, I've always been pushy. <laughs> Sorry, this is me. But um, I described this snake to the zoo curator, the herb curator at the time, a guy named Rus Rusty Grimpy, still around the Tulsa area. And he said, I think you've got a decayed brown snake there. And my grandmother looked at the book. My mom swore it was a copperhead, made me turn the thing loose. I got bit by it three times. It wasn't a copperhead. I would have ended up in the hospital. You know, the rest is history. And is there anything in Oklahoma? I mean, what's your favorite uh, herb to find? Honestly, the Texas horn lizard is one of those animals that used to be all over the state. I mean, I, I don't think, I, I can't think of a single county that didn't have them. And now they're restricted to these, the southwest area of the state and a few populations in the central area. And a couple of couple of pocket northeast populations, um, you know, they but they used to be all over. And seeing them disappear from the landscape has really just it, it's been an amazing realization of what habitat destruction and development, and what we as the human race are doing to the planet. I mean, you know, this di different grasses get planted, invasive species come in. Uh, people, you know, use more uh, lawn fertilizer, insecticide, things like that take a real toll on a lot of this native wildlife. And seeing things like the horn, Texas horn lizard go away, that's uh, definitely an iconic um, Oklahoma reptile. And they're probably my favorite to find, and I hardly ever find them anymore. Wow. So is there any reason why things like, uh, say, the hognose or some of the, the snake species have, you know, somewhat adapted to this fragmentation and destruction and the horn lizards haven't? You know, there's a lot of different theories floating around about that. And I'm, I'm far from the uh, from, a, you know, a herpetology expert. But a lot of people think it's the Bermuda grass. People brought in Bermuda grass, started planting it in their lawns. Then they threw it in soccer fields. 
and then they threw it in, you know, just, and then it kind of just becomes invasive. It goes wherever. And I think that that kind of grass, I, you know, I don't remember that being there when I was young and we had this scrub type of habitat that, you know, the old soccer fields and things were made on. And I think that was like, you know, they could hide under it and stuff. Whereas the Bermuda grass, they can't, they can just sit up there on top of it and get picked off by a crow. So I, th I think that it's, um, you know, definitely, a, you know, changes to their habitat. Um, definitely their land has been destroyed. Uh, we have fire ants just out the wazoo here in Oklahoma. And, um, you know, we don't see the harvester ants anymore. So to find the Texas horned lizard in, in this state, it seems like you have to get really far away from people and even then really far away from development. So those drives are worth it when I get to make them. I still haven't got to film one yet, but um, definitely on my list to do this year. It's interesting um, what you were saying was the cause to the lack of the horn lizards was, you know, people bringing in grass. And, you know, there's so many things we see that people actually like, I think they're purposely doing things to harm the animals, but I'm sure no one when they're planting in their lawn was ever thinking, oh, this Bermuda grass, like they don't, it's just grass to them. And so it's hard. It's like, do you, do you feel like there should be things in place to like, police the ignorant your, your but then HOA the, would like freak out right, if you didn't right, have a perfect right. lawn and all this stuff but then at the same time it's like is that way too you know is that encroachment to be like oh you can only put tell everyone Native everywhere grasses. you can only put these grass like not to us that seems reasonable right to, to us, us. It seems, but to the rest of society who i don't know is it is it right to police the ignorant and, not, and i'm not saying ignorant in a bad way they just don't know but i i'm what are your thoughts on that I think I think it would be I think it would be good to have some policing of stuff like that. I can tell you that when you when you weigh the the you know lawn attractiveness versus your local state reptile, you know I, I can tell you who's going to win that battle. Um, sadly, you know I'm I'm surprised that Oklahoma has you know banned burrow gassing and actually banned burrow gassing for years which is still legal in Texas. I know that's something you and I, Joe, have talked about at great length, but, um, you know, but, but that's actually something they do that they have banned. They will watch out for and things. And, you know, so, but I've done a lot of, um, I just recently finished my master's degree at Oklahoma state in environmental science. And a lot of what I studied and eventually did a dissertation on was, you know, like habitat, wildlife, human conflict, you know, like some of the land battles out West where cattlemen want to run their, um, their flocks of cattle on pronghorn habitat. Well, the environmentalists don't want them there. The cattlemen think they have a right to the land. Uh, and, you know, then you have those weird people over there that are scared of any animal and just want to shoot at things. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of a mess because you, you realize that there's different stakeholders in all these issues and whether we like it or not, they all have value. They, they all have a, a, a say, so to speak. And that's really helped me see the roundup issue through a different light. Yeah, I guess it's always this push and pull versus like economic progress mm -hmm. and environmental 
you know, you want people to be on the side of the environment, but also we don't want people to be living in squalor. You also don't want people to like, you don't want to control every aspect. Yeah. And you want freedom. You know, you also, it's hard. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's really a mix up, you know, and there are people at different herb societies in our state, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma city, who will probably, say, no, it's the fire ants. And then this guy will say, no, it's the Bermuda grass. And this guy will say, no, it's the pesticides. You know, we don't, I don't think we really know. I haven't studied it enough uh, to really point to one particular issue and say, this is for sure it. But um, I'm really happy to see places like, I think the Dallas Zoo is breeding the Texas horn lizard and things. And I think they're working on a reintroduction program, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's Fort Worth. Fort Worth. Great zoo. Hope you got to check it out while you were down there. Oh yeah, yeah. I really liked. Um, I really love the Fort Worth Zoo. Great place. But I, I'm really hoping that those guys can make a comeback someday. But that's only if we have land for them to come back to. Mm. And so that's a different consideration. And that may be, you know, after you know I move on. But you know, I, would it be neat to see them in the wild again someday without driving four hours, five hours? Yeah. And where they are now, I mean, are they at least protected there? Yeah, in, in Oklahoma, there are species of special concern, which means you cannot pick them up, handle them, do anything to them, possess them. It, you know, back in the back in once again, I'll go back to the seventies when I was a kid first discovered these animals. You know, I would go to my brother's soccer practice, and I, you know, I wouldn't want to watch these guys practice kicking a ball around. I would go over and look at the anthills and notice these funny little lizards, you know, popping off ants. And you could find 15, 20 in a night. And now, and today you drive four hours to get to their habitat or two and a half hours. And, you know, and a lot of, um, a lot of people I've talked to about it have, have told me that the farmers don't want to turn in reports of the sightings because they're afraid, you know, that it might start affecting their land or what they do with their land. So you have the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation encouraging people to turn in Texas horn lizard sightings. And then I hear that many people are reluctant to do so. I do know there's um, pockets of them still in the northeast part of the state. And, you know, and they historically they've been there. Um you know, some people have recently found them and I think they've you know bragged about, I've got a record, you know, and no, they, they were there 40, 50 years ago. I mean, just maybe no one documented it. Maybe you're the first to document it, hmm. but you know, historically they've been all over the state and even ranged into Kansas and Missouri. Wow. And is there any type of like cooperation between landowners and conservationists or is there any way that, you know, they can work together to find a solution? You know, I, I think I think with some landowners, they're more open to that than others. Um, we do have a lot of landowners here in Oklahoma that are like, you know, get off my property, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like Texas. Yeah, it's not too much different from what it is in Texas. And and honestly, I, I, I understand that, too. But but then again, that's that's why you got rednecks like me out there that can go talk to these people if need be. You know, I'll show up. Todd, yeah. you're not a redneck. Well, I think you're a good bridge because you're a native Oklahoma born. 
you know, individual, but also you are very steeped, obviously, in science and which is not a redneck. <laughs> Rednecks don't have master's degrees in environmental science. Yeah, but but we we do get drunk at rodeos occasionally. I'll, I'll tell you that much, and, you know, and things like that. And but no, I just um, I mean, I can I consider myself, you know, a native Oklahoman, and kind of what that means to be here. It has a country western heritage to our state. Our, our state is very rich in it, just like Texas. And, um, you know, that's one thing I've done with a lot of these guys who put on these roundups is I go and talk to them and I speak their language. I don't, I don't freak out on them. And pretty soon I'm getting cooperation out of them. They're telling me things. They're giving me information. They're showing me what they do. They're showing me what they don't do. And, and bridging those two sides is, is, is something that we set out was to have a goal all along was to to achieve that and like I said I'm you know or like I said earlier I'm pushy you know I'll just show up on your door or whatever I mean but um you know if ever I if ever I need to get more involved with that or get called upon for that I, I mean it's something I'll do but right now I'm still kind of neck deep in the roundup issue and how did the roundup first come to your attention well I'm going back to going back to my grandparents place that I spent a lot of time at when I was growing up, uh, there was a National Geographic special that aired on public television in 1977. It was called The Animals That Nobody Loved. And it uh, focused on coyotes, wild mustangs, and western diamondback rattlesnakes. And they showed, you know, the roundups as they were occurring and showed, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking, these are these awesome snakes. These people are, you know, killing them and skinning them and, I just, I couldn't wrap my mind around it, but, but it was like that moment changed me forever. And I knew that one of these days that I would like be going to talk to people involved with this. I, I would, I would say, Hey, maybe we can come up with a better way. Maybe we can, maybe we can do something to make a change. You guys still make the money, you know, cause later on we found out it was all commercial, uh, you know, so it was just from an early age, this has been in the back of my head. And then the, the RAR Facebook group came along probably 11, 12 years ago. And I was one of the first, I was in the first 100 people in that group and somehow rose to being at one point an admin. Today, I've kind of stepped back a little, prefer to do more in the field work. I like to go and communicate with hunters. I like to go and communicate with the buyers. And that's just, I mean, I'd rather do that than sit around and run a keyboard. You know, it's just... <laughs> But it's, um, you know, and, and, but it's something that I think is progress is being made on. It's just slow. And we live in an instant society, and if they don't see it now, they think nothing's getting done. A lot of things are getting done behind the scenes that just aren't getting talked about. Can before we go too deep into RAR, um, can you give us just kind of the history of Roundups and kind of what a Roundup is? I mean, for the people who aren't initiated. Well, sure. Um Rattlesnake Roundups, they kind of started, their precursors were in the 20s when people were settling the land in Oklahoma and Texas. And, um, you know, anything you can find and kill and eat uh, is fair game. Uh, You know, it's definitely there's documentation of old WPA uh, employees, you know, killing and eating rattlesnakes and stuff like that. And, you know, people started moving more into those areas during these times. So the first roundup in this area was one in Okeen, Oklahoma in 1938. 
or wait, 1939. It predated Sweetwater by 20 years. And actually, it used to be the Sweetwater of the 60s and 70s. Uh, my wife told me about going to the San Diego Zoo when she was younger. And they had a, you know, Stop the O'Keen Rattlesnake Roundup exhibit, whereas today it would be Sweetwater. It's the one that has all the attention. So these things are, you know, definitely uh, shrinking, disappearing, not as many people hunting snakes as they used to. I, I mean, I'm very optimistic about the Western Diamondback. The Eastern, however, you know, it needs every ounce of help it can get. Um, it's facing just immense habitat destruction. But sorry, I got away from <laughs> got away from your question. No, a little no, bit. you're fine. But um, but how the roundups occurred was, you know, ranchers would settle the land and they'd find a rattlesnake den where they wanted to put cattle or sheep. And this, you got to keep in mind, this is in the 30s and 40s. This is before things like anti-venom was readily available. Uh, not everybody owned cars, things like that. It was a three, four-hour trip to a hospital, whereas today, you know, your life lighted there in 20 minutes. And so people would, you know, catch and kill all the snakes and bring them into the center of town. Well, this group of people in Oklahoma, and I know some of the descendants of this original roundup, they decided we would start catching them and bringing them into town alive and making a show out of it. And so you see pictures of them with all these old archaic brake springs and things which were kind of the precursor of the modern-day tongs. And they would just catch them live and just make a big show of it. And people would come, you know, because what else is there to go see? I mean, you know, it's just kind of like they, they would make a big show out of it. And they, and then someone, you know, wait, we can charge a gate fee. Next thing you know, you can set up a booth and charge them a fee. And it just kind of bloomed out from there and spread out across the, the Southwest. And was gassing always the technique that was used to, to get them out of their dens? You know, from talking to Oklahoma hunters, it doesn't sound like gas was ever really popular up here. Um, I know that Texas uses a lot of gas, and I don't know if there's some kind of difference in the topography of the land that's hunted that gives rise to that. Um, a lot of people that I know that hunt rattlesnake today, they just go and hit the same dens two or three times, or and then they swap out, they rotate dens, and they, they usually catch, you know, 20 or 30 apiece. And they, they say they never have any problem finding them, but they will not use gas and they're adamant about not using gas. I've been to, um, I've been to some roundups in, in Oklahoma where I've seen boxes of snakes refused because the buyer thinks they may have been gassed. And once again, it's illegal in Oklahoma. It's still very legal in Texas. And, um, you know, and I think the buyers are looking at this. Is this, you know, is this an undercover game warden with a box of gas snakes? Or is this, um, you know, just another hunter? But either way, you know, they, they don't buy them gas from what I've seen in Oklahoma. And they really do look out for it. So that's, that's one s small silver lining. Are the fumes that strong that you can tell right off the bat? Well... <clears throat> Sometimes, yes, I've been, I've seen boxes where people open the box and they start to pull the snakes out and you get a whiff of gas. I, I've, I've seen stuff like that, but also there's snakes that, you know, slither off to the left when they should slither straight. And you can tell the snake has a neurological difficulty going on. And it's kind of like, you know, it's, it, there's ways you can tell. 
uh, which snakes have been gassed and which snakes haven't been. And um, the gas is definitely a big part of the Texas hunts. I think a few people still probably do it and maybe even get away with it in Oklahoma. But what I've seen in Oklahoma is I have seen the buyers at particular roundups looking out for that. So to me, that's one good one good piece. And what's the state of roundups currently in Oklahoma? Are there still, you know, kill events and all that? Yeah, they're all still, um, unfortunately, they're all still kill events. I'd, I'd like to see one take off like, um, Wig, uh, not Wiggum, Claxton, Georgia. Claxton, Georgia is the one I'm thinking of. But um, they all have butcher shops that are on public display. People go there to buy snake meat. Um, you know, it's and it's and it's definitely kind of a you know we're you know we're not we're here to you know kill, you know kill the snakes for the meat. Um, a lot of times snakes leave. A lot of people don't realize this. A lot of snakes leave roundups alive. Now, exactly who's buying them, where they're going, I don't really have that. But a lot of snakes are sold alive out of out of roundups that I've seen, and you know, people with um, I don't know if they're people who are. I mean, I'm sure they're licensed buyers because the game department checks for that kind of stuff up here. But it's just, you know, it's just kind of, it's kind of a traditional thing. Like, you know, your grandfather teaches you to fish. You taught your dad how to fish. Now your dad teaches you to fish. In a lot of these rural communities, <laughs> there's no lakes. So what do they do? They go hunt snakes instead. And so you kind of have this, this cultural, cultural component to it. And I've definitely observed uh, that. And um, it, it doesn't seem like the Aatrox populations are being hurt the way that, um, you know, other snake populations are in other areas. Uh, I'm definitely really concerned about the Eastern Diamondback. I feel it should have been uh, federally protected, you know, 20 years ago and just simply hasn't. And when Claxton was at going full bore, I mean, were they using Eastern Diamondbacks for that for that event? I mean, were they killing Eastern Diamondbacks? Uh, historically, from what I know, yes. The, that's one that I have never actually been to. But I think in 2012, they stopped any killing whatsoever. I think they might have used some wild collected snakes. I think some people today donate snakes and bring them in and, and let them just do the show with the, you know, the snakes. And you know, people like just get them on a snake hook and lift them up and show them to the kids and some people, you know, still pin them and, you know, secure the head so the kids can feel the rattle and things like that. But um, it's definitely overall a positive, more progressive move in, in Claxton. Um, what's going on at Wiggum, which is the only other roundup in Georgia, is really kind of yet to be determined. Uh, some people, I've heard, I've heard conflicting stories about what's going on there, so I don't really know. Hmm. So is it, I, I guess it would, would it be still legal in Georgia? It's just Claxton decided to turn into a no-kill event. Yeah. Um, if my memory serves me correct, um, I think the Georgia department of natural resources got involved with, um, the, the Evans wildlife club and said, Hey, let's do this a little differently. And then some kids from, um, I want to say they're called One More Generation. I can't remember the kids' names, but I know that's their group. I think they, you know, started some things, and I think Centers for Biological Diversity got involved. And they, you know, came along and said, you know, we'll support this if this 
tilts this way. And it was kind of just a, this slight change from the only thing we're doing now is we're not collecting wild snakes or we're not collecting as many wild snakes and we're not killing them. Now, once again, the specifics of that, there are people in RAR who know people involved with that. And I would, I would probably point those questions to them because they're like on the ground. Um, one of my buddies, Raymond, he does, he sometimes does the educational show at Claxton. And I think um, everyone's seen the video of his, I don't, I can't, I can't remember if it's his or if it's one of his friends, but it's Edgar. It's like an eight foot albino Eastern diamondback. And the thing is just stunning the video of it years ago, two years ago went really, I want to say viral, but it got around. Most hurt people saw it. And so, you know, I definitely drop any questions in, in a group like RAR regarding Claxton, but it seems like it's definitely on the right foot. Yeah, I guess now switching back to Oklahoma, I mean, obviously Texas is bringing in snakes in crazy numbers. I mean, what's the size of the Oklahoma roundups now? Well, Oklahoma, <clears throat> Oklahoma, I think, had six active ones. Um, I'm trying to think. I'll have to count on my fingers because you think I'd have all this memorized by now. I actually don't. But I, I know they had, I know, I think at one point they had seven and then one just dropped off the map. The one in Thackerville, Oklahoma, recently shut down. Uh, it's my understanding that the guy that organized that took two bites at the last uh, Warica, Oklahoma roundup, and he decided he wasn't jacking with snakes no more. And, you know, once again, whether or not that's the full story, don't don't quote me on it or hold me to it. But um, we still have like Apache, Warica, Waynoka, Okeen, and Mangum. And those are the five strong ones in Oklahoma. Um, there was Thackerville, it's dropped off and Texas, um, has, um, has, has lost a lot of theirs over the last 10, 15 years as well. What do you think, I mean, is responsible for that decline? Well, there's a, like getting back to the horn lizard. I think it's a number of factors. I think, uh, you have fewer people living in the country. You have more education, um, you have things like, you know, uh, fewer um, people want to be want to sponsor these hunts or be associated with them because it's like a politically incorrect thing to do now. And so just in the last 10 years, I know that Big Springs uh, Roundup in Texas dropped off the map. Uh, the one in Taylor shut down. Uh, mm -hmm. The one in Walnut Springs came back after being dormant for 10 years but they've kind of definitely, they're definitely on the minus side of the plus minus scale. And um, I have a book handy. It's hard to get a hold of. It's called Texas Rattlesnake Roundups. Dude, I found that book in a used bookstore in Dallas at a half price books and I picked it up and I was like, holy shit, there's a book on rattlesnake roundups. I did not expect that. Well, if you go, if you go to the center of the book, they have a diagram of all the ones that used to be there in Texas and at one point, I think it was over 41, you know, roundups occurred. And today, um, I think there's definitely less than, there we go. Let's do this at the same time. Bam. 998. 998. That's a good price. I think I paid $12 <laughs> for mine. Now I'm mad. You overpaid. <laughs> uh, if, if you see it, I would snag it because it is out of print. Um, but if you're, if you're definitely interested in the history of how these things came about. There's some Jack Bibby action on the back there. There you go. That's who is this person? 
Can you explain? That's his name, right? Jack Bibby? Yeah, his name's Jack Bibby. Um, I know him pretty well. I talked to him on the phone once in a while. He actually um, welcomed me and some of my folks into the the Oglesby Roundup, which is the only one he's involved with anymore. And um, that's a smaller Roundup in Texas down by Waco. No snakes are killed at the Roundup. They're sold to a buyer. And what he does with them, I, you know, unfortunately, I don't think it's good. But, um, you know, they do just do handling shows and they do the crazy stunts. But he's kind of getting to where he's just an MC anymore. He doesn't do a lot of that stuff himself. And that's the only roundup he's still involved with. But uh, I, can, I can call him at any time of the day and he'll talk to me about anything. And he's actually been a source of good information, you know, about, you know, when, you know, the roundups he was involved with. You know, in 1996, this happened. In 2001, this happened. So the guy's kind of a, a treasure trove of knowledge about it. But then again, he's been involved with him for 50 years. So, of course, he knows the scene. Yeah, yeah. And he used to do kind of those, uh, like, stunts and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And that's why he lost his leg, actually. he, um, I think it was his 11th or 12th bite, and he finally lost a leg. And, um, <laughs> that's that's a decent track laugh. record. You should not laugh at that. That's yeah, not funny. T- technically, we shouldn't, and and I'll t- I'll tell you why because it just pads a snake bite statistics somewhere. That's kind of what I figured out is, um, you know, and and definitely Jack has been even though he gets demonized in the hurt community, and I kind of understand why they demonize him. He's been the most open to come and talk to people like Danny Mendez from Urban Jungles. You know, he did an interview with him. He's talked to me. He's talked to several other people in the hurt community. He said, look. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. The guy has been 100% honest with me, and I've got to give him a lot of props for that because a lot of these organizations, they start putting things up when I come around, you know? I mean, you know, so it's, um, you know, definitely the guy does take some heat for what he does, and I definitely would not recommend you emulate him in any way. But uh, he has, he, I, you know, I can say that he's, he's told me the truth about a lot of things. So, um, and he's been a, a source of information. And on my channel, I do have a video that features uh, his group, the Heart of Texas Snake Handlers. It was narrated by my buddy Edgar Ortega. From um, He was the old Central Valley Herb Society president in California. And today I just think he does karate and I think he beats people up a lot. But, um, but uh, he's, um, you know, definitely I, I got down into that part of Texas and got to do some research in some of their events down there and found out that the different things happen for different reasons, you know, and he was and like Brownwood, the Brownwood, Brownwood roundup, which is not too far from Sweetwater. They quit killing snakes publicly a few years back. They just decided they didn't want the blood and guts to be part of the show. And so now that's some of that still goes on behind the scenes is my understanding, but it's no longer part of the show. And you know, and it's kind of like, to me, it's, I think that's a move in the right direction. I'll say that. And even like, kind of, you've mentioned a little bit, like, is Jack Bibby now kind of withdrawing from the whole, you know, you got to be in the snakes if you've been working with snakes that long. Is he kind of withdrawing a little bit from the, the kill type of well, mentality of the roundups and stuff like that? You know, he appears to be, he does some, he does some dog training with rattlesnakes. It's kind of controversial and, um, you know, and things like that. 
and I think he does some like independent shows. I saw him on like Guinness Book of World Records a while back. But um, you know, it's just uh, is he is he is he easing into retirement? Yeah, he's definitely definitely going there. He's he's he used to be involved with four or five different roundups in Texas. You know, one time he was like involved with thirty of them, and today he just has that one lone holdout in Oglesby. And they only they only took in I think 125 pounds of snakes this year, which is like really small for them. They they normally take in three to five hundred pounds, and uh, I want to say they only took in 125 pounds. Um, their main snake hunter guy was like out; he didn't hunt that year, so that just kind of throws a wrench in the whole their whole roundup. But it's um it's interesting stuff to have watched, observed, documented, photographed, been a part of. Now you say like a couple hundred pounds, and I think some people may think that that's a lot. Uh, can you give an idea as far as a like say what Sweetwater typically does in comparison to that? Well, uh, a roundup like Sweetwater generally takes in two thousand to five thousand pounds. That seems to be about their average number. Now they had one year. Uh, I want to say three or four years back where they took in 24,000 pounds. Oh my gosh. They had not seen over, I think over 10,000 pounds since 1982. So, and then they set a, this is a record of 18,000 pounds in 1982. And then here we had, you know, this mystery roundup where, you know, they've been taking 3000 pounds, 2000 pounds. First time I went there, they barely had 2000 pounds of rattlesnakes. And then, you know, just here comes 24,000 pounds out of nowhere. I'm a little, I'm still to this day, a little skeptical. Yeah. I'm, I don't doubt that they brought in that many, but I kind of wonder what the prices were. I kind of wonder if they had help from the national chapter, the JCs, you know, things like that. So it, it begs the question. Are there, I mean, who's out there monitoring like where people are getting these from, right? People could be bringing them in from, multiple places correct yeah um no one's really monitoring that from what right. i see um I, I i've heard that some of the texas parks and wildlife people do stop by the sweetwater roundup um i also know that um i see the oklahoma game wardens some of the oklahoma ones but it's not like you're tagging snakes and saying you know this handful is from this county or right. you know um I, I do know that there's uh, there's still there still appears to be really healthy populations of uh, Crotalus atrox in Oklahoma. I, I do, do think it has the hunting has affected their population some, but it doesn't seem like it's like wiped it out or you know it seems like he's, there's still snakes out there, and we're finding them further east in Oklahoma than what we'd previously thought. So. You know, it's kind of a hard to gauge situation. I would like more oversight from the wildlife department on that. But in Oklahoma, as in Texas, you know, it's kind of, it's, they're not, a, I don't think there's much of a priority as they should be. I'll say it like that. And then I guess to kind of bring it back, but also talk about Texas. I mean, it's illegal to gas in, in Oklahoma. Are they doing anything or does Texas Parks and Wildlife I mean, are they thinking about this issue? I know that um, sometime back, my friend in Pennsylvania and in, in Philadelphia, his name is Bill Rulon Miller. I think you know who he is. I don't know if you're very well acquainted with him, but he had, he had started. I didn't know he was in Philly, by the way. You know, we live in Philly now. 
Well, he, he's probably he's probably outside still in the car stereo or something, Joe. You, better, <laughs> you keep an eye on him, and and he's he, I know he's watching, so I know he's going to see that. But um, yeah, he's in Philly, um, and uh, he he had drafted a petition, and it was um, it was signed by several biologists, zoologists, um, people with a lot smarter than me, and it was basically asking. Texas Parks and Wildlife to reconsider using gasoline as a means of take, not based on the rattlesnake, but based on the collateral damage to amphibians, invertebrates, you know, things like that, and and the overall damage to the habitat plus possible groundwater leakage. And they put it off and put it off. And like, I think three or four years later, they just said, we're not going to you know, we're not going to make this a law. We're not going to make this a rule. And then they passed a law where people from who people from out of state can draft petitions for the state of Texas. And um, it's, it was kind of interesting because it's kind of like they, they, they wouldn't outlaw gasoline, but they would they would make a law that said you had to be, you know, a Texas author to author a petition that would be heard in Texas. Does not surprise me. But, you know, I just want to see the gas go myself. So I want to um, see it all go. You, that's a lot to ask. You mentioned kind of a little bit of it, but I mean, what are the long-term ramifications for those, you know, amphibians or, you know, what else is using those dents? Well, you know, it, it kind of depends on what, how much gas is injected into a dent site. Um, you know, some people have dumped gallons into a dent site some people can just spray the fumes and know how to do it. Um, I can tell you that any gasoline that touches any amphibian, that amphibian is gone. You know, things like your spadefoot toads, your tiger salamanders, things that would inhabit those kind of desert and grassland burrows. Um, it's definitely going to, you know, hurt things like, um, you know, uh, box turtles, you know, very slow, can't get away from the fumes. So um, other snake species... Um, I think Steve uh, Ludwin told me that when he went on the tour, they um, guessed a burrow and a porcupine came out. And so it's like, yeah, like there was a porcupine in this burrow and Steve Ludwin was telling me about it. And I'm just like, that's just amazing. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy to think that a, a porcupine would be down in there, but you know, you don't really know what's down in there. And I think that was kind of the point they were coming at was, you know, it's not just about the rattlesnakes. Think about all these other animals that are affected by a practice like burrow gassing. And, you know, in, in Oklahoma, it just doesn't seem to have ever been a thing, at least not in recent years. And I know you, you kind of said it in passing, but uh, this, the, uh, the piece that you did on vice, um, you were, you were in that with Steve and I thought that that was awesome. And I thought it was great just to see him uh, dressed in his rattlesnake pants or whatever he was wearing (laughs) around Sweetwater. It was amazing. Yes. um, Steve Ludwin is a totally fascinating fellow. I wish everybody could get to hang out with him for five minutes because he is, a lot of people are turned off by his things like his self immunization and stuff like that. And you know, but he really, really cares about snakes. He's very, very passionate um, about you know, snake welfare. And they did this whole tour through the United States where before they went to Sweetwater, they went to a snake handling church 
in Virginia or Kentucky, one of those states. Oh, I remember that. Yes, and he was talking about how infuriated he was when this guy stepped on this timber rattlesnake. Mm. And I, I, I agreed with him. It was definitely infuriating to watch. But um, love him or hate him, you know, and he's a controversial figure, but um, I was honored to be asked to be in that. It's definitely one of those, wow, they're, you know, they're calling me, wow. But um, he's just a great guy all around, and the Vice crew were great. Their film people were great, and I just kind of didn't realize it was going to work like that. You know, I mean, it's, you know, one moment you're inside the Sweetwater Roundup, and the next moment you, like, get a call out, you know, hey, come outside, meet us outside. And next thing you know, this, like, four-foot-tall British lady, you know, comes up to me and starts attaching microphones all over my body into my head into the backs of my ears and and it's just going all kinds of over the places and next thing you know you're just you're just doing the interview and you know, it's just it was an experience that that's a picture of him right there how and, old is uh, he you know i think he's in his 30s i uh, i would i don't think he's hit, hit 40 yet um but I, I I don't know his age. We talked a lot about his um, music. He puts out some music too, and he puts out some pretty good uh, hard driving uh, heavy metal type music, which is kind of up my alley. So, you know, we we, we got along pretty good uh, based on that. Well, I remember seeing like the original piece that he did about self uh, immunizing and the apparent energy he has and i remember him saying his age and i was like whoa he looks a lot younger than he is so i mean i'm not saying that anything is working or anything but i don't know it was impressive well well you know he's he's just um he may be he may be a lot younger than he i mean 49 he's 49 Oh gosh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought like 38, 37, something like that. Wait, this was in 2016. He was 49. Oh, he's, oh, in, his he's in his 50s and he looks like that. Steve, come do the Joe show. Set the record straight. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to have him on. I don't I don't mind it at all. I think it's uh, you know, he loves snakes and we honestly, despite whatever's going on, I think the more people that we have that love snakes, the better. And I think there's definitely something, despite how you, you feel about it, anyone feels about it, I think there's definitely something to learn from him. Yes. Um, and at the base of our podcast, it's to learn more. Exactly. I, I, th- I think you can take any snake person, even as someone who like Jack Bibby, who's involved with these roundups, or who's been involved with roundups. I mean, you wouldn't think someone like that keeps pet snakes, but he does. Um, you know, I've, I've met other people involved with roundups that, you know, sign petitions to keep, you know, ball Python ownership legal because, you know, they're, they're into owning reptiles. I mean, it's, it's not as black and white an area as a lot of people have it pegged to be. And that's why, you know, I was really impressed with you, Joe, that you said, well, Hey, I'm down in Texas. I'm going to go to this one. And you went and you actually did it because a lot of people, you know, say they couldn't do that. And I understand that as well, but you kind of get a feel for what's going on there. You see, I think the, the town of Sweetwater, I think they love the rattlesnake because without that, the roundup would go away. And that's the only thing anyone goes there for. I mean, any other major event is going to go to Abilene on one side, Lubbock or Odessa on the other. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, I mean, the moment the, the Aatrox becomes endangered, I think Sweetwater are actually going to be 
freaking out. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it's and it's definitely weird going there knowing that or at least seeing that the town itself really isn't all that big and yeah. how much their economy actually depends on this event. And I'm not condoning it in any sense at all, but it's also kind of you can see that it's important to them economically for sure so it's it's hard to say you know you're all terrible people doing the wrong thing because you could see also that it's their culture like what you said before and it's clearly something that they love to do it's not you know i hate snakes it's they love to attend this event to hunt the snakes and eventually slaughter them and skin them and put their blood prints on the wall i don't get that last part but but it's it's the first half of that that I think is uh, it's kind of interesting to see their side of it and try to at least be a little empathetic and put yourself in their shoes uh, as far as that goes. It, it, it definitely helps because what you will find out is that these events have like high amounts of support in these areas. And a lot of times what you will find out is, you know, although – I'm like you, you know, no amount of money will ever justify this over here. You do have towns like Warica, Oklahoma, and they have a volunteer fire department there, which means if your house catches fire and you live there, I mean, it's going to be a volunteer firefighter that comes and puts it out and helps you cope with it. And they use all the funds from their roundup to raise money for their equipment. You see, without the roundup, they wouldn't have that equipment. And that equipment directly benefits people's lives. So it's kind of hard to come in and say, hey, stop this or shut it down because of the perceived benefit to the humans that live there. And I think, honestly, you could start doing no-kill shows and probably bring in more people than, you know, these old these older style shows. All the ones in Oklahoma still um, – to the best of my knowledge, kill in public where they have a butcher shop show and a handling pit show. And, you know, and, and which they're kind of all just kind of like sweet water in a way They're you know, one handling going on over here, milking going on over there, you know, butchering going on over here. It's just kind of all the same thing everywhere you go. There's a few of the smaller ones in Texas that um, they've gotten away from the public killing. So, you know, once again, a move in the right direction. Yeah. But I, I think I think at some point they could become more like what they are in Pennsylvania even and um, probably be just as successful and may, maybe even more fun for the people who normally attend them. I'm not condoning it either, but, you know, I, I do think that a lot of people live for this time of year. And, um, you know, it's just I think really the onus is on the game departments in Texas and Oklahoma to say, look, you know, it's been 40 years since anyone's done any population density studies, or it's been 50 years since anyone's done any population density studies. We need to do that. We need some population density studies, you know, things like that. I think it's kind of on the game departments to kind of step in now and, and not necessarily, you know, shut down the roundups, even though that might be what we would want, but say, hey, you know, where are these snakes coming from? Where did, you know, where, what are the, what's going on? You know, how many males are you taking? Like in Pennsylvania, I, I talked to Bill cause he's been to um, the Knoxon one. Um, I think two or three times 
And I want to say that the game wardens up there check and they, they count the uh, ventral scales to make sure that you have a male and not a female. And, um, you know, because you're not allowed to collect females. You know, that kind of oversight in, in something like a roundup is just amazing. I would love to see something like that going on here. But, you know, will we or won't we? I don't know. You know. Well, I mean, it goes, honestly, it goes a lot farther than that, even at Noxon. It's um, so my buddy, Alan, who actually lives out in Wilkesbury, which is close to Noxon, um, we went out and basically there's like the mountains up behind, you know, it's right there on the like where the fire department is. And I guess that's where the grounds where they put on the show and all the money goes towards the fire department. But, right. you know, you see everyone out there looking for rattlesnakes and you do have to tube them and you do need to count the caudal scales. And I feel like, you know, the amount of people who are handling rattlesnakes that day, it's so surprising. And it kind of is a testament to the timber rattlesnake, how, how chill they are that nothing happens. But uh, they also have a biologist there and they swab them all for snake fungal disease. I've heard and that's I, been happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. So it's not just, it's not a roundup, like, cause it is kind of like a fishing derby, more of a feel to it where, you know, I found the biggest one, I found the biggest yellow phase or the biggest black phase, but you know, it's also, you, they get to survey, you know, the population and they get to test them for snake fungal disease. And there's racers that are coming in, there's black rat snakes, you know, whatever large snake you can find. But, uh, and, and it's not an awful amount of snakes. I mean, we're talking about there's maybe 50 snakes in the pit. And right. uh, and the the general attitude and the general kind of just feeling was that it was a positive environment. And even like I couldn't even ex- expect that at most pet stores. If someone came in, I'll hear someone say, ooh, it's a snake. But everyone there was kind of enthralled and very positive about you know, the snakes and kind of uh, working with them and getting and touching the black rat snakes and stuff like that. So it was really, really cool to see. Yeah, I um, actually know some people up in Pennsylvania who hunt. And I've hunted the ones in Pennsylvania for years. And um, one of them is a gentleman who gave me some, he gave me a VHS tape recently. And it had footage from like, 1998 1999 when they were still doing the the stacking with the western diamondbacks in pennsylvania that they imported from oklahoma and so they would still have stacking contests you know this was like 92 93 somewhere in there back in the 90s and uh, i'd have to pull out my notes to get a feel for it but we went through all that video and i was just like you know wow this you know then they they since done away with that what is that, by the way? You need to explain it a little bit more. What's like a sacking contest? A sacking contest is where there's only one left that I know of in San Rico, Oklahoma. It's um, it's where they take a bag of rattlesnakes and they dump them on the ground, usually on a, like a platform or in a ring. And your partner pins the rattlesnakes, picks them up, and throws them in the bag. Whoever bags all the snakes the fastest wins like $200, $300. Nine out of 10, someone's getting bit in this deal. That's so dangerous. What are the, what are the safety precautions? Uh, safety? <laughs> like, did she just say safety, Jeff? I mean, I thought for sure there. <laughs> That's just like, yeah, how can I possibly make sure that someone gets bit? You know, doing things fast and working with that. Ugh. 
it, it, it is it is very dangerous and that's um there was one in taylor texas and then there was one in Warica, Oklahoma, and the one in Warica, Oklahoma still operates. I know the one in Taylor, Texas, when the Roundup there died, it died. But literally, um, you know, it was rough treatment on the snakes as well. But a lot of people get bit during the sacking contest, and they used to do this at the Pennsylvania hunts. They just never used timbers. They used Western Diamondbacks, and they would get them from Oklahoma. And, you know, and things like that. And it, it, once again, it's a dangerous sport because your partner's holding the bag. You know, for you to pin oh. a snake, grab it, and throw it at a guy <laughs> holding an open burlap bag. I mean, for both of you, oh my gosh! Yeah, I've got a, I've got video of it somewhere. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. And if you go to um, some of the roundup pages, like uh, the one Warika, I think they've got some video of it out there. And um, you know, I've got some video of it where a guy know a guy who I know uh, was actually bitten, bitten pretty bad. And I just haven't released the video. I kind of don't want to do that, you know, because it's just like, you know, just be more snake bite video out there. But it might give me some numbers on the YouTube channel. <laughs> do they keep, um, keep anti venom on the premises of all these things? Um, no, they do not. Um, I was at one roundup last spring in Oklahoma, and there were two different bites, uh, one of which occurred during a sacking demo when they were running a demo. And um, this is not the Warica one. This is just another one. And they were kind of evaluating whether or not they want to bring back the sacking contest. But um, there were two different bites. One was on Saturday. The other one was on Sunday. The one on Sunday was part of the sacking contest. Both, um, both people had to be life-flighted to Oklahoma City. And this is from, like, out by the panhandle of Oklahoma. So this is a good, you know, you know, trip out to Oklahoma City. And I'm sure it cost a cost a pretty penny life flighting people is not cheap yeah i was and, gonna say is crow fab uh, worth the 200 dollar potential right. prize one drop <laughs> like not even oh it'll be the cost of probably opening the vial like they probably charge you 500 dollars to open the vial there goes your winnings De- definitely i i don't see how anyone would do that and think it's worth it um you know um i was talking to one of the guys who was doing it at um, this one roundup in Oklahoma, and um, he made a joke about you know how the, the rattlesnake sackers are the last of a dying breed, and I said yeah, there's a reason for that dying part, Holmes. Um, you know, this <laughs> <laughs> is pretty stupid crap. I mean, you know, it's it's um, it's definitely dangerous. Uh, people used to do it though all the time. People were very good at it. There was big prize money in it. The roundups used to be a lot bigger than they are today. I mean, and that's one thing I really want people to grasp is I, is I don't like, you know, unlimited collection of wild snakes. Most of the people watching your podcast, you know, will not like the roundups or anything to do with them, but they're shrinking. They're, they're, they're lessening in size. They're, they're on their way out. That's the way I see it, you know, in the, in the historical view of it all. I mean, there used to be a lot more and now there's a lot less and I can deal with there being a lot less. And it seems like, as of, you know, probably within the last 10 years, I'm sure there's a lot more eyes on them via the internet than there ever has been before. Uh, definitely social media has kind of been a, um, a blessing and a curse, so to speak. Um, you know, I encourage people do not go to these people's Facebook pages and flame them. 
um, you know, because I think it kind of has an adverse reaction where they're like, you're not going to stop us from snake hunting. And then we people like people like, you know, who are opposed to this get labeled as out of state animal rights, crazy groups and things like that, which just kind of solidifies their efforts to carry on. I don't think that like, you know, flaming or making fun of people or, you know, talking bad about these people is um, helpful in any way whatsoever. Many people disagree with me on that. Um, That's fine. Uh, But, you know, this is kind of where, you know, my crew hangs out over here. We go into these hunts and talk to people. And it's, it's just really, um, it's just really kind of a different thing is, and it's, it's part, it's part of it. It's really, uh, you would just have to see it over the last 15 years of existence and roundups that I had intended to research and I'd intended to make had on the list when I first started, you know, died three years after I started doing the research. Mm. And there was one in Sharon Springs, Kansas. It went out. There was one in Alamogordo, New Mexico that, um, happened for two or three years and it went out. So these things are not growing. They're shrinking. And uh, that's good news for the rattlesnakes. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, how did it come about as far as, you know, RAR and all that stuff? I mean, what really started the, I don't want to say like internet activism, but uh, yeah. Well, the, the, the group was made by a guy named, uh, Jared Wood and uh, another guy named Travis Underhill. And I think um, Dr. Wood today is teaching at some college in Texas. I think he's teaching zoology or paleontology. I know he's always digging up dinosaur bones and things like that. So it seems like he's got a really cool gig going on. But they just started this Facebook group and it just somehow exploded. I think, you know, I think there are things going on like, you know, here's the government saying you can't keep a ball python in this town because it's a dangerous constrictor. And in that same town where Petco's are shipping their, you know, corn snakes and ball pythons out because they're dangerous exotics, you know, Joe Rattlesnake Hunter has three boxes of rattlesnakes in his garage. It's totally legal. You know, where's the sense in that? I just think, you know, that kind of things are kind of coming together to where, you know, things blow up and, you know, some people are realizing, you know, that there's a lot more people out there liking snakes than there were 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. So is there, I mean, it seems like a lot of people who are involved too are from the reptile hobby in general, or maybe they're biologists or some kind of mix in between. And it seems like just the general love for reptiles has gone up in the last 10 years too. So maybe that is, you know, something to do with it. I, I want to say I was watching Herpers, the movie Herpers by Dave Kaufman. And I think Russ Case was in that. And he said that 4 million homes in America now have some form of reptile pet. And that just is, that was just unheard of, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And, you know, and so I think more people, you know, I, I deal with a lot of uh, removal calls in my own neighborhood. Uh, I kind of live on the edge of the country. So we have, you know, we have a lot of water snakes, garter snakes, things like that. And people, you know, people freak out and say it's a copperhead. Then other people come in and say, no, it's just, it's just a rat snake. Leave it alone. It'll take care of your mice. Just you know, scoot it out of the garage with a broom. So I think people's attitudes are changing over time. It's just, it's just slower than we'd like. 
Yeah, but I think, uh, you know, it's easy for for us to say the people who love snakes that no one should ever kill a snake, blah, blah, blah. And I understand if someone finds a copperhead in their garage and they're scared and they kill it. I hate that. But I mean, and I, I think that was a big, a big part of, you know, when we put out the Sweetwater video, it's that a lot of people were like, oh, you guys are just city folks who don't understand because in my backyard, there's a rattlesnake and my kids play out there, my dog's out there, and it's potential danger to my family. Right. And I, I definitely encourage people who, who take objection to this, like I do, to put yourself in their shoes because, you know, I've seen people who were, um, you know, biology professors, uh, zoology professors, people, you know, come and defend these hunts because they're, they had a kid that was bit, you know, when he was six or when he was eight, things like that, or the family dog got bit you kind of had to understand that when snake and people meet, there's, there's historically been conflict and there's probably either it will probably go on for some time. We're kind of getting, I think we're getting to the, the point in time where a lot of people realize that, you know, just walk away from the snake and it'll leave you alone. You don't have to go get a stick and kill it. I see a lot of people, joggers and hikers who are like, Oh, that's, that's a copperhead. Let's flick it off the trail with a stick and, gone about our way and they don't beat it to death like they would have 20, 30 years ago. So I think we're getting there. You know, I definitely think we're, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. And now, I mean, what do you see as the future of something like Sweetwater? I think it's going to go on um, a few more years, maybe another 10, 15 years but it doesn't seem like there's the interest there once was. I, I do know that what I see happening in Oklahoma is grandpa ran this thing for 20, 30 years, passed it off to his son. He ran it for another 15 years. Now he wants to pass it off to his kid, but his kid doesn't want to stay in the hometown and work the rattlesnake festival. He wants to move off to the city or go to college and so no one's left to run the festival. So I, I think, you know, that's part of the reason for the shrinkage of some of these is, you know, less people, I think less people live in the country today than used to. It seems like fewer people are being involved in agriculture today in the United States. And there's good and bad to that. But, you know, it just seems like these things are getting smaller. And a lot of the ones in Oklahoma, they're, they're a lot less centered on the snakes. The snakes are there. They're part of the show. But you can you go through six blocks of vendors to get to the one building that has the snakes in it, you know, and everybody's selling sunglasses and T-shirts and, you know, flags and, you know, political stuff and just everything. So, I mean, you see you see all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I thought it was kind of funny. And even Noxon was was like this, too. I mean, it's pretty much a flea market more so than uh, and Sweetwater has a little section where, I mean, half of the venue is pretty much like a flea market, but also outside the venue, there's pretty much a flea market, which. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's also, you know, an event for for vendors looking to sell Trump flags or I don't know, whatever. They're... <laughs> you know, it works for me. Um... <laughs> But um, the last time I was in Sweetwater, I, I um, was the time I went down to meet uh, Mr. Ludwin, the vice crew. 
we actually, me and my wife went through that one building that was an entire flea market to the right side of it. And that thing was, was huge. It was bigger than the roundup itself. Then on the other side was the gun show. And you kind of realize that um, hundreds of people go to this thing and never see a snake. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just kind of the way it is. But the snakes are there. They're, they're a part of it. And, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, I, I would like to see in the future people either collecting snakes and taking them back to the same dens they were caught at and released and hopefully not kept out of the wild for too much long. You know, is that likely to happen tomorrow or the next year? No. You know, can we get there eventually? I, I hope so. But uh, there's still a demand for um, the snake meat and some of the internal organs. Like if you go, if you if, if you will, um, do a Google search on rattlesnake gallbladder, you'll see there's a market for it. People, you know, pay for these things. They're used in folk medicine. And um, some people eat the meat. I've tried I've tried fried rattlesnake. It's the nastiest crap you can get. <laughs> I mean, serious. And I, I will eat some weird stuff. You know, I will, I, I, I would shoot a squirrel and eat it, an armadillo. I would do something like that, possibly even a possum if I was hungry enough. But rattlesnake, it's just, you just rather starve or eat dirt or something. I, I really do not see how people acquire a taste for that. But we do have historical records of people eating it. So, yeah. And is it, um, as far as rattlesnake meat, I mean, is it safe to to eat something with gasoline fumes or is that just frowned upon as far as if you're going to harvest for meat? You know, I, I don't really know how that, how that plays into the things, but what I see is I see the hunts in Oklahoma, you know, butcher and process rattlesnake meat and sell it to the general public. Um, once again, the vast majority of Oklahoma snakes are not gassed. I say that, and I say that with confidence. Now, you go down to somewhere like Texas, and a lot of their snakes are caught with gas. But, you know, how much of that transfers to humans when they eat it? How much, do, you know, fumes do the snakes ingest? Do the snakes ingest the liquid? We, you know, no one's watching that. We don't know. And it's kind of odd that, you know, the someone like, you know, the Department of Agriculture, the, you know, local health services hasn't checked that out or looked into that, you know, but, uh, you know, it's not my, um, you know, it's kind of, it, that's kind of beyond the scope of what I can figure out. Uh, but, you know, kind of what, why the health departments are allowing, you know, meat, you know, caught in the field, you know, to be sold to the public is, is beyond me. I, you know, I just don't know. Yeah. And are those gallbladders, are they going overseas or do people do that here in the States? People do do that here in the States. I do know that some of them are going um, overseas. I, I don't want to sound stereotypical um, at all, but I, I, I have noticed that they're used in Asian folk medicine, um, I believe is a cure for uh, erectile dysfunction. And, you know, people do, I've, I've seen like people at some of the hunts in Oklahoma sticks nine, 10 gallbladders in a thing of gray goose vodka and then sell the, the bottle for like three or four times what it's worth. And once again, what I haven't figured out the whole, you know, why are they doing this or what are they hoping to achieve? But what we, what we do know is that, that it sells and someone's buying it somewhere. Boners. That's what they're trying to achieve. That's what they're trying to achieve. Jim. That's what they're trying to achieve. <laughs> 
It's, any, anything can be an aphrodisiac if you think about it. You look at all over all over the world. There's so many different things that they use for that very purpose. Rhino horn, rattlesnake gallbladder, bat wings, you know. <laughs> and if, if you humans would just quit wanting sex, we could save some wildlife here. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's the procreation of the species, though. It's important. That's it. That's it. But, I mean, it seems like... Uh, even in places like Texas and Oklahoma, I mean, there's so much barren land. And I know, you know, our friend Max, who works in Abilene, Texas, I mean, yeah. he finds hundreds of snakes. He finds hundreds of snakes at a time, you know, in one den. And um, it seems like the Aatrox isn't exactly hurting. Well, that, that's that's the argument that, that gets made is, you know, people like – in Oklahoma, I'm familiar with one specific roundup that happens in northern Oklahoma, and everybody hunts the same ranch, and they've hunted it for 80 years. You th- and they still pull 200 to 500 pounds of rattlesnakes off it every year. You think after being hunted for 80 years, they'd have killed them all off. So, you know, are they reproducing faster because there's more of a food supply every third year, something like that? You know, that kind of stuff really, to me, needs more study. Um, and I would I would like to see that. You know, I'd, I'd like to see someone, you know, really dig in and study that. Um, you know, but it's, it's – the Aatrox has a much wider range, and it, its range encompasses a lot less uh, human civilization than, let's say, something like the Eastern Diamondback that, you know, it, I'm sure it has pockets in Florida where they're still found – I mean, I see pictures of them from Florida, but we all know how rapid the growth is happening in places like Florida. You know, so, I mean, that snake is losing so much of its home range. And um, it's probably, the eastern diamondbacks probably being hurt more by, you know, vehicle mortality and habitat destruction than they are from being hunted. Because the Roundup Southeast, you know, they, they get 20 to 50 snakes if lucky. I mean, I'm hearing it's a real, real small number. Um, so, but, you know, whereas the Western Diamondback, you know, there's a ton of land out here and they do seem to be a hardy and adaptable snake. Um, we're, you know, they actually range over into Arkansas. A lot of people don't, you know, realize that, but they do inhabit, you know, the Eastern uh, type forest habitat. And a lot of people think of them as just a desert animal or a grassland animal. And they're actually you know, found in deciduous forests that, you know, that are located by lakes. So, you know, we kind of got to, you know, it's, it's hard to, it, it's kind of hard to stage an argument, you know, to, you know, have people quit bass fishing when there's a good population of bass or quit snake hunting when there's a good population of snake. I do, I would like to see, you know, bag limits or something. I think that would be, you know, people will be allowed to turn in 25 or 50 pounds of snake and then, that's all you do. And if they catch you turning in more with them, that's when they can give you a ticket. Like, like what would happen to you if you shot two deer with a rifle during, you know, your standard rifle season in Oklahoma, you know, I mean, they'll still put you in jail over that, but you know, it's kind of reptiles are viewed a little differently. That's kind of sad, but you know, we're working, we're working on it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh squatchy Herper in the chat actually asked Todd, have you ever seen an Eastern diamondback in the wild? No, I have not, Squatchy. How you doing? Good to see you. Squatchy's my buddy in, in Arkansas. Me and him, we're going to get together and collab on some videos soon. 
Oh, nice. So do you have any places or anything that you want to herp in the in the near future in particular? Me? Yeah. Definitely. So what's on your radar? Um, spots that I've poached for my friends that they don't know I've caught on to. <laughs> don't <laughs> yeah. post too many images on Instagram, people, with uh, landmarks. Todd will... Because, like, you know... I'm not going to poach the animals. I'm going to poach your spot. But um, no, I'm going to get back out to Western Oklahoma soon. Do some filming out there. Their start today was or yesterday was the first day of rattlesnake season in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, there's a four month rattlesnake season. And the good thing about this is, you know, you can go out and find snakes coming out of their dens. It's kind of the time of year where they're starting to emerge, and so you can find them like moving and stuff. So I'm going to hit I'm going to hit Western Oklahoma soon. I, I want to get back down to Southwestern Oklahoma, and then I want to get over to Central Oklahoma or Central Arkansas to see Squatchy. Squatchy found awesome. a really good spotted salamander. Did you see the picture of that Joe? Um, is that the one that his uh, is his profile picture on here? Let me see. No, I, well I don't think so, but. Um, uh, I'll have to track it down later and get it to you because it's like it's almost like an albino or something. It's like it's just this way. He's like I I don't know how to describe it, but it's just a really wicked looking, uncommon spotted salamander. <laughs> we'll say that. And yeah. I, I, and, and I think you, I think he'll take me to that spot. And I, I promise I won't leak it or. Ooh. Ooh. That's that's amazing. I mean, that is something that. Uh you know, a one of a kind animal. Have you been able to find anything like that in the wild uh, through your years of herping? Me? No, I have not. That was an easy question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't got that lucky. Is it, uh, is it that guy right there? This? I, that's what it looks like. I, yeah. Uploaded by Squatchy. That's it. That's the one. So it's, it's, Whoa. So, I mean, it's a completely different pattern. Yeah. And I, I don't know. There were some salamander experts chiming in on it on, um, I want to say NAFA. Um, and I don't know where everything ended up. I thought it could have been a tiger at first. And, but then someone else pointed out that they didn't think that was tiger range. And there was someone who knew more about them than I did. And so I, you know, I, I wasn't really in on that conversation, but yeah, Squatchy says it's on his Instagram. Okay, you see it. But um, yeah, he recently found that. So I'm gonna we're, we're gonna try and do a collaboration at that same spot if we can. I yeah, it's a, kind of funny. It's like he's still got some spots on his on his legs there, but uh right. the body's all whacked out. Yeah, but no, I never get to find anything that cool. I, I find your <laughs> basic run-of-the-mill drab copperhead, you know, pe no, I never find a striped copperhead or an albino copperhead. You know, I, I just don't get that lucky. It just doesn't happen to me. And what kind of things are you seeing? I mean, you said like you have uh, you have hognose now that are coming by the house. Um, what are things that you're looking for this time of year? Um, Definitely, well, really, just anything. I'm looking to see my first snake. We're hearing the amphibians every night. The frogs are calling in the field next door. Um, anything besides your basic Nerodia species, I'm wanting to find. Um, yeah, I definitely have not hit my local spots yet this year. I've kind of been tied up with, um, a lot of family stuff and a lot of things with, uh, work. 
and so I haven't got to do I haven't got to get out a lot this year. But I definitely want to hit my local close to home, you know, within an hour drive spots, you know, the lakes and things and and get out and see, you know, even if it's just copperheads and rat snakes, you know, just get out and see what I can find. Um, you know, good day, uh, you know, a bad day in nature is a beats a good day at the office, they say. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Is it kind of like, I mean, when we were in Texas, it, it seems like a copperhead was probably the easiest thing you, you could find. Um, is that also true in, in Oklahoma? Yeah. Um, copperheads in, on my, on my side of the state are probably one of the most common snakes. And if it wasn't for their good camouflage, they would probably get killed in the hundreds. Um, sadly, some do get killed in the hundreds when we have the annual cicada runs. Um, a lot of times the news the ABC and NBC news affiliates here in town will do a story on them. And it's just like, you know, this has been happening for over 300 years, you know, for four or 500 years, you know, why it's, it's not news. These little snakes crawl up the tree to eat a bug. You know, it's just, it's just, um, you know, cicada buffet, but, but some of the news, the news people will make a story out of that. And, you know, they will, you know, use, you know, terms like invasive copperheads and <laughs> things like that. And, you know, and one family killed 13 under a tree. Well, you know, they're on the other side of the land from the lake. And it's like, there's another 50 over the side of the hill. Of course, I'm not going to tell them about that. But, you know, it's just, we've coexisted with snakes peacefully for hundreds of years. And with a little bit of knowledge and education, we can continue to do so and even have less conflict. And I mean, how do you get out there and let people know? I mean, when you have those types of things, whether it's media or anything like that kind of working against you, I mean, how does the regular everyday person uh, get educated on this stuff? Well, I like to go out to people's places. Um, you know, if they're, if someone on, you know, a, an Oklahoma page that I'm part of, says I'm in Bixby and I'm chopping up all these copperheads in my yard. I'm like, give me an address, give me 10 minutes. And I run over there and, um, you know, usually collect them, go mile down the road, release them, something like that. I know that's controversial and I know that's not the best practice, but at the same time, it's either better than the alternative, better than the alternative. But a lot of times what I can do is I can take, you know, like a neonate hook or something and pick up a baby copperhead and, you know, just say, look, you know, it's just kind of an animal and it's just, you know, it's just not going to, it's just, it just wants to eat and get back to shelter. And, and I'll, you know, I'll have my snake boots on or something. I might put my foot down by it, wiggle my foot and say, see, it doesn't want to bite me, you know, and show people things like that and kind of hopefully demystify the animal uh, sadly, a lot of a lot of the venomous bites on this half of the state are copperhead related. We, I mean, it, you know, we've got copperheads and pretty much timbers over here for the most part, and pygmy rattlesnakes. Do you guys call those cane breaks? No, we call them timbers. Do some they? People, some people do. Yeah, get a, get a war started in the Oklahoma groups, Joe. Why don't you? They'll be watching <laughs> the podcast later. Todd Autry called it a timber, not a cane break, and. Next thing you know, we'll have taxonomy wars going on, and I just I just call them timbers. Do they do they have like that classic 
gold coloration that say, you know, when we were in Texas, they had? Yes, yeah, so a lot of people, the Texas ones don't look much different than the Oklahoma ones. They, um, you know, a lot of people would, would call the Oklahoma ones cane breaks, and some people would still consider them to be cane breaks. But, but you know, I'm not, I can't handle a taxonomy war tonight. So I'll say I call them timbers, and that's what I call them. And maybe I'm behind or uh, in front, or, you know, I don't know which, but. Yeah, or you just call them Hordis and be Hordis, super safe. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's funny how we get we just get caught up in words that exactly. don't really matter. Exactly. And and Bill Rulon Miller finally makes it into the chat room we see. I know. He missed uh, us talking about him. He missed us talking about him. He missed us insulting him and <laughs> picking on him and making fun of him. Not Bill's him. a great guy. I'll, I'll tell you who has really been a big help recently is Autumn Graham. And she's over by Pittsburgh. She's helped out with the RAR group immensely. And she's taken on a lot of the administrative and clerical duties and things that that group does. And so she's been a godsend. So, Bill, you're still in the trash can, Autumn. We love you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what is with all these PA people uh, getting into rattlesnakes? I, you know, I, I, I don't really know. Um, Bill was one of the first people I met in RAR back in – I want to say 2008 and he and he was the guy that made me an admin and you know the rest is, is history and to this day you know me and bill see each other every couple of years we get together for something and it's usually him making it out here i i, I owe him a turn i need to make it up there to pennsylvania but um he's a great guy and we went to some roundups down here together to document some things and photograph some things and, um, you know, Bill's all around great guy and he's a real warrior for rattlesnakes. He, um, he's put his heart and soul and his whole life into this issue. Um, I would say more so than me. And, you know, so he, he's definitely done a lot of work and, um, he does a lot to educate people. So, you know, definite thumbs up to Bill. Awesome. And what can we what can we expect as far as uh, RAR goes going forward? I mean, what's the what's the goal there? You know, I, I don't really know at this point. Um, I'm no longer an admin in that group. I've kind of stepped back from that role for right now because I'm I'm very busy with um, family issues, and I, I got real tied up finishing my um, my master's degree. That really that and family together and working a full time job. I kind of got a little bit removed from the world of RAR and that's where people like Autumn have stepped in and just Autumn has been amazing. And um, Bill's still over there helping with the show. You know, I don't know. I think, I think we're going to probably try to get one of these roundups in Oklahoma, maybe one of the smaller Texas ones and either see if we can do something constructive with it. Uh, Like either encourage, you know, to do a catch and release um, I do know that some people from Pennsylvania and who are involved with the Pennsylvania hunts have been going to some of the Texas ones and saying, hey, look at this. This is what we do. And that's an effort outside of like the scope of RAR and what they do. That's just like, hey, you know, this might you know be around a little longer if we do it like this. And um, I'm optimistic about that because, you know, when, when you approach these people and, you know, you approach them as their friend, not their enemy. You definitely gain more ground, more traction, more respect. And that's what you need because the whole town 
you know, is freaking out over a rattlesnake that's going to bite their dog or their kid. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you kind of got to, you kind of got to, got to wage war with honey, I guess is what they say or something like that. How'd you make the initial, uh, like, infiltration, the initial uh, introduction to, you know, like the JCs and different people like that? Well, you know, you know, I just kind of went in and started pointing a camera at things. Um, first roundup I hit was uh, one in Oklahoma called Apache. It's down by Lot in Oklahoma. And um, that was one of the ones that did the mouse sewing. If you look at the pictures of the mouse sewing that you see on the internet, 99% of those photos were taken in Apache, Oklahoma. Can you uh, explain that a little bit more? Like, why is that even a thing? Well, people want to have their picture taken with a live rattlesnake. Well, okay, you can't have most average people hold a live rattlesnake. So what people, you know, at the Apache hunt do, I think the Mangum hunt still does this, is they remove the fangs and they stitch the mouth with like twist ties or clips or staples. And it's just a really horrid practice. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's blatant animal abuse and you can pay $5 and get your picture taken with a live rattlesnake. And it's actually kind of only semi alive because it's on the way out because, you know, to go through that amount of stress, I don't see rattlesnakes that survive it. And, um, but, but really I just kind of started going to these things and um, pointing a camera at people and, you know, saying, Hey, you know, what's this, what's that asking questions and like I said, you know, used to, I used to fight with all these people and it used to be, you know, like we'd, you know, have, you know, where every time we'd cross each other's paths on Facebook, there'd be a fight, you know, or something. And, and now today it's just like, we're like old friends or we're like old enemies that became friends. And so like, they don't, they don't give me any grief. Like, like when I was in Sweetwater with, um, with Steve, they, they, I mean, they, I was walking around taking pictures of things. They knew who I was. I mean, I'm sure they've got a file on me and, and that's fine. You know, I, I know most of them. Um, I've talked to a few of them on the phone from time to time. And, you know, it's just, it's just kind of past that whole anti-activist stage. And hopefully, you know, RAR in the future will be more like it was in the very beginning where we're forming relationships with these people and saying, hey, instead of you guys doing pictures of a rattlesnake that's been mutilated, can we bring in a boa constrictor? You know, can we help you do this some other way? You know, more cooperation and, um, you know, hopefully some kind of constructive help to help them get away from the old ways of doing things. And Darren Watson, they make $5 a picture. I see the questions over there on the side. I just figured I'd start answering him. He's ha- yeah, he was asking whose job is it to sew the mouth and how does that person, how much does that person make to sew the mouth? Uh they, I don't think they charge anything to sew the mouth. I don't know who that person is. That's kind of something that's always been in the back of my mind because technically um, we've investigated that before and we've been approached by attorneys who deal with animal uh, felony animal cruelty. And they say that's a violation of this state statute. This is a violation of this law. And um, we looked it up and Bill being Bill Rulon Miller being the scholar that he is, you know, he goes into he, he has this database where it has every law in the United States and he finds it. And sure enough, you know, it is, it does appear to be maiming and torturing an animal. 
but they stick them in a freezer to slow them down. Then they yank their fangs out and then they slow their mouth shut just so you can, you know, charge $5 for a photo. And they might take 50, a hundred photos with this rattlesnake. So they make a lot of money off that. And, um, that's something that's, that's my, that's my limit of what I can see happen. I understand that people will kill and eat rattlesnake and that'll go on. People kill and eat turtle. Um, you know, but uh, it's just that just blatant animal cruelty for exploitation to make money. I just really can't um, get with that. Um, that's just that's that's kind of my limit of my breaking point of what I can handle. So, but we've we've got it documented. So, yeah. And is that that's something that is ceasing to happen at the moment? Well, one roundup. I think it, it used to happen in Warwick, and that's one of the first places that I filmed it, and. Uh, I heard that they've gotten away from it. Now I haven't been back down that way in a few years and I've heard that they've gotten away from doing that because they don't want the negative press associated with it. Um, about two years ago, uh, a newscaster from Lawton um, went to the Apache roundup and had her picture taken with a snake with its mouth shut. And the news station got death threats, all kinds of things and I, I felt it was really kind of counterproductive because it made the snake loving people look like a bunch of psycho lunatics. But there was, there was like a lot of like investigations and people were, you know, looking into things and it was really a bad situation, but you kind of got to also understand you post something like that on social media, you're going to get backlash from, you know, the PETA types and, you know, the, the people who definitely speak out against that. Well, I think it, and it definitely, uh, we found out the hard way that it goes both ways too. And I just want to say that we appreciate like when we, when we put up our video about Sweetwater and, um, I guess we didn't want to be too direct and like hateful about it, but we tried to, I don't know, put out the facts of what's going on. We definitely, I mean, we didn't want to put our opinion too much into it. I think if you present the facts, like we've presented here, like, you know, the amount of pounds, the what they're doing, I think that people form their own opinions very easily about it. Um, but it was also super overwhelming, the responses, and Todd took care of like so 80% much. of them, <laughs> at the least. <laughs> Man, I just, you know, I, I, I think that propaganda doesn't really do us any good. Hit them with facts we've got enough to complain about with the facts, with what we know, with what we can prove. Uh, so to me, there's no sense to get into propaganda. You know, we can say excessive harvest, unlimited harvest of females, they're using gasoline. These things are enough that we can complain about. We don't need to, you know, make up things or get into things that are stretching the truth or make claims that we can't prove because they easily turn those back around on us. And say these right. people don't know what they're talking about, and in some cases they don't. Right. And that's why even like this book, like we talked about earlier, like it presents so many facts. And I think most people probably like wouldn't most people who are against the roundups might not buy this book. So they may think it's like in support of it. But just like looking at the page that talks about like the amount of years that these things have been running. So when this book was written, when was this? Two thousand six? Two thousand six the Sweetwater Roundup had already been going on for 40 years. Right. So it's a ma- like it is so ingrained in that society 
that like the work we're doing or you've been doing, you know, 2018 when we put out our video and stuff, like the people that were commenting, a lot of them were like from that area. Their parents are from the area. Their grandparents are from the area. So you, you have to understand who your audience is. And while we are completely against it, we have to present it thinking of your audience. Exactly. You, you definitely, you definitely want to pr- approach these guys with respect. Um, keep in mind, they grew up, they, they, they look at someone like me who will go down the street to Whataburger and order a hamburger and say, well, you know, someone had to kill that cow, you know, so they don't see much difference. And, um, to me, there is a difference. You know, it's, it's different harvesting wild animals for food sources than, you know, it is animals that were domestically raised. But you, you have to approach it with a certain, you know, tact and a certain amount of respect for the people that are doing that. And that way you, you get it back and then you can go forward with things. I have to say, side note, I miss Whataburger so much. <laughs> Where did you get that Pennsylvania, you come down here and you're like, Whataburger. I don't get it. Whataburger to me is just, I don't know. Before I moved to Texas in Louisiana, I always used to like shit on Whataburger. I was like, why does anyone love it? It's so lame. Like there's so many other things. And then we moved to Texas and I had that like the the Southwest, like Chipotle with the pepper. I mean, and then it's like 24 hours too. It, Definitely found a spot in my heart. You see, I've got this theory that they make the Whataburgers in Texas like supreme and they're like pristine and everything because the ones in Oklahoma I don't think are that good. And then my friends come down from from, from places like Pennsylvania and they're like, man, where's the Whataburger? <laughs> you know, if it's close, we're going to break into it and fire up the grill. I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, it's, it's Whataburger, man. You know, so... It's, it's different strokes, different folks, maybe something different coasts, but yeah, it's all good. Yeah, you got to have that Texas water. Yeah, you know, it's like New York pizza, <laughs> Texas water burger. Yeah. Exactly. That, that's, it's something like that. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and throw Bill a correction. If um, he remembers, yeah, me and Kim were involved in that story. Jared, who started Rar knew about the mouth sewing, and Ned was going to film it. Ned was going to get it on film back when he had a show on Animal Planet, and they were going to actually rescue the snake, and it didn't work out, and security bailed on us. And I think which left me in the middle of town um, on a cell phone going, uh, what do you mean security's left? Uh, what do you mean they're not, like, 10 feet over there? You know, it, it was definitely a bad situation that year. Wow. But, um, you know, things happen. Things happen in this journey. <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. I was I was kind of curious about like what your experience was, because I mean, obviously, you've had to trust like media sources, whether it's, you know, Vice or whether it's, you know, that situation that you just mentioned. I mean, how do you make sure that everything's going to be spun in a positive light, you know, the way you want it to be portrayed? Um, You really can't. Um, A lot of times you don't. Um, You just have to kind of put yourself there and hope that things are going to work out the, the way you want them to. And, um, you know, it's the media, they can edit anything. They can make you appear to say anything. I, I, I looked into uh, Steve's background and kind of figured out that, you know, this, you might get a little crazy in places, but it's still <laughs> going to be pro snake. Yeah. 
I figured he wouldn't be involved with it if it wasn't. And so, you know, you just kind of, you know, I, I've seen a lot of that in the media. I've, you know, my friend Ned had a show on Animal Planet and they edited things in his show, you know, that made it look like he was saying something he wasn't and things like that. And it, so you just kind of got to gotta roll the dice and you've got to figure out, is this the real thing? Can I make this logistically happen? You know, and you, you just got to hope for the best and then be ready to do a lot of damage control and then have people like Bill and Autumn standing by to help you do damage control. Yeah, I think it's, I, I mean, I feel that it's better for you to take the chance and go out there, even if, you know, they do edit it up or chop it up. I mean, they're just going to get someone else to do it. And mm-hmm. it may, you know, they may not need to chop that up or edit it up. Maybe someone who's inherently, you know, negative well, in the situation. So. Right. And, and, and if, if, if you know anything about me, you know, I love reptiles, people who have known me for 10 years, 20 years, two minutes, they're going to know I love reptiles. And so at the end of the day, they're going to know that if anything anti-snake or something comes out of my mouth, they're going to know it's an edit twist or something. So kind of changing subjects a little bit before we finish up. Um, what is your plan now that you've gotten your master's degree? Like, what is it um, that you plan to do with that? I'm going to take over the United States Environmental Protection Agency and um, achieve global domination. <laughs> I think that's a good plan, actually. <laughs> yeah, actually no, um, honestly, in the future, I plan to be looking for a um, job probably doing environmental site assessment one type work where you get to go out and evaluate damage to um, properties that are being looked at for commercial use or, you know, agricultural, whatever. And um, basically anything that gets me outside so I can hurt, Um, you know, but, uh, you know, definitely I'm, I'm really interested in air quality and water quality. Those are the two areas that I really, really enjoyed uh, studying. And so I, Definitely be looking for a position in one of those fields at some point in the future. And, you know, and, hope, and hopefully I'll just take over the EPA and global domination. <laughs> Tenure plan. One step at a time. <laughs> exactly. We actually met someone, I think it was the Baltimore Repticon show last year. Um, and their husband did kind of similar thing up here where like if, say, Walmart wanted to build a new Walmart, like his job was to go out and like look at the land and everything, like see what animals were already out there, like see if it was, they were able to do it. Like, and then like relocate the animals potentially if it was safe and everything like that. And I thought that was such a good combination um, of worlds for people. Yeah. I I think those um, kind of jobs are important and that would be like an ideal job because you know, one thing I want, one thing I've always been passionate about doing is helping wildlife. And then if you can get paid to do it, it's even better. Um, but that work is very important. I've definitely, I've definitely seen parts of uh, land in Oklahoma that have been saved from commercial development because of the existence of an endangered species and things like that. Like we have the American burying beetle, which at one time was like a very common insect throughout the United States highly endangered Hmm. and and once again without environmental specialists working the land they wouldn't have known their existence they wouldn't know that that's one of the few pockets left so you know it's definitely landing a job doing something like that would be something i would probably take that is honestly like really 
optimistic as far as like it makes me optimistic that someone cares about a beetle because maybe then people <laughs> will care about some reptiles as well they do and we're getting there and then it's 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 coming believe me it's coming and i mean what is kind of uh we've talked to some biologists and stuff like that in florida and talking about gopher tortoises and like at times they were just laying foundations over burrows and stuff like that i mean is there now more positive interactions between you know commercial and endangered species what i've noticed and i especially noticed this you know in college evaluating different companies plans is companies today will use it as a selling point like if pepsi cola says we were going to put you know a 2000 acre facility in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but we found that we would disturb the homes of 20 burrowing owls to do so. We decided to move our plant elsewhere. And they'll use a lot of companies will use something like that as a selling point. You know, we use renewable energy. We only we use recyclable plastics, things like that. I mean, that's just an overall good aspect for, you know, the green part of the environmental business culture that we're seeing that, you know, it didn't exist 60, 70 years ago. You know, back in the 1940s and 50s, it was, you know, dump all the pollutants you can in the Love Canal and watch it catch on fire. <laughs> you know, so we're definitely dealing with a different social consciousness towards the environment today. So it's something I'm looking forward to. Or as to quote Steve Irwin, he said, I'm strangely optimistic because there's so many people working on the well-being of the environment at this point in time. And I think that says something. Yeah. I think that, I mean, really, if you think about it, the environmental movement probably started like Rachel Carson, maybe it's sixties. I mean, really that's when people started caring. Yeah. And the, and the EPA was like, I think formed in the, I want to say the seventies, or maybe that's when they passed the first act, clean water act. It's, um, you know, it's where I think we're, I think we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. It, it, it started in the late 60s and then kind of spun from there. And it's grown and changed and um, ever since. And, and it should, um, it should continue to grow because people today want to know that they're making a difference. They want to spend money with companies that they know are taking into account the well-being of the environment. So it's definitely something we're seeing come out of corporate America. And now I guess to kind of wrap it up and because we haven't talked about it, um, you have an MBK. Um, what else mm -hmm. are you keeping in captivity or what have you kept? And uh, what's your, what do you got going on in like the captive side? I, I have an MBK. Um, that's about it. Uh, what all I have kept, um, what haven't I kept? Um, <laughs> I used to be a big Gear Source fan. I used to like get into plated lizards a lot. Oh, I do have a, a, a I have uh, five Clemascutata. I have some spotted turtles. Um, definitely like those. I keep them outside, so I kind of just forget about them. I just throw a handful of food out there every week, and they get sun and bask in their in their natural natural area. But um, that's about it. I, I've kept I've kept a lot of things that I, a lot of things I probably shouldn't have kept over the years, um, you know. But it's um, 
you know, and, and once again, it's, you know, the high cost of anti-venom, you know, why keep things, you know, go, go check it out at your local zoo. <laughs> you I mean, it, is that really where your interest lies in, uh, in the venomous animals? I'm pretty fascinated with our native venomous. Um, a lot of people, you know, call copperheads and cottonmouth trash snakes. I think they're amazing. Um, same thing with Western diamondback rattlesnakes because they're a common species out here. A lot of people discount them, but man, any day you find one is just is just a great day to me. So, you know, it's it, it's pretty much native venomous. There's kind of a high point for me, and I'm also a big turtle guy. A lot of people don't know that about me because they think I'm just rattlesnake guy. I'm um, I'm really into the turtles. I'm really into the work that people like TTPG are doing. Um, I know some of the people involved with that. Um, I definitely like things like spider tortoises and hinchback tortoises and then the rare Chelonians. So that's definitely a high interest point for me. Do you ever plan on keeping anything like that? Uh, not, not anymore. Not at this point. I'm, I take care of so much stuff just, uh, you know, with, with family and, and things that I've kind of got my hands full with that. So I don't see me owning a zoo again in the near future anytime soon. Although probably 10 years ago, I probably had one of everything under the sun. <laughs> different boas, different constrictors, different venomous, different vipers, lizards, turtles, iguanas, you know, it's, alligator i had an alligator for two weeks i don't know if <laughs> really? the game department's watching this but i said it oh well it's past the yes. statute of limitations now we gotta yes. remember that also but, if any game department's watching it we'd be in people be watching us we've what, said where, we said a lot more things that we keep that we don't what okay we'll talk about exactly that. I said, I said gator i meant caiman that was a caiman <laughs> people have said a lot of things on here no, no. Yeah, that's, that's that's true. I'm probably tame in comparing to, comparison to most of your guests. So, <laughs> so eh, that's not that's not a bad thing. I'm with Aaron Watson down here. Copperheads are my favorite hot. They're not my favorite, but they're a good one. To me, I don't know. I find them pretty much as beautiful as a snake could be. You know, I was talking to a Roundup guy in Texas, and he said the same thing. He had a copperhead hat band, and I was like. What's up with that? I mean, he's like, he's like, oh, copperhead's the prettiest snake I've ever seen. He said they're a lot prettier in these western diamondbacks, and I think it's funny because people on the eastern side of the state, you know, think the the western diamondback rattlesnakes are so awesome because they never see them. So you you kind of appreciate what's not in your own backyard. Yeah, yeah, and I'm pretty, I'm partial to the the ones in in Texas in particular is because. Uh, it just seems to be like a certain integrated zone where I don't know yeah. they're extra beautiful up here. They're kind of dark and they can be like a maroon color. I think more people like that as well. Or like in Trans Pecos, they can be also pretty red. And I, they come in a lot of amazing phases. But what are you looking at me like I that for? I just don't see it. That's it's fair. brown. <laughs> yeah, a little, I, I little green pale. Copper. It's hard to get better than a Trans Pecos copperhead. Yeah, yeah, check it out. Are you sharing the screen? No. Yeah. I like it out okay, red. Okay, no, are. that one is a lot redder. I do like that one. And it's better. Those individuals seem to be banded, which is really, really cool. Did you ever keep those, Todd? Never. 
I don't know. I don't know if you're being sarcastic or not. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> I, I, I will say I've fostered a lot of copperheads. They're definitely a snake that I've had to keep a lot of just, you know, momentarily till I find a place to release them or till, you know, people go away or then you can just let them be where they were. Um, I would love to, the Trans-Pecos Copperhead is one of the few I would entertain owning. I don't want to be in venomous ownership ever again. Um, but, you know, a Trans-Pecos Copperhead would make you think about that just because of their sheer beauty. Yeah, I think it's it's unfortunate here in PA, Copperheads are illegal because they're native, but they don't they don't differentiate between any of the species or... So you just can't have copperheads no matter, you know, they could be from Trans-Pecos halfway across the country and uh, PA doesn't really care. Right. Uh, and and I've, I've heard about that from, from some of my friends up in Pennsylvania. And I just, I, I kind of think that's, that's interesting because copperheads to me are not anywhere endangered anywhere throughout their range, any of the subspecies that I know of. But, um, you know, so... But we can have was, cobras and all other exactly. types of stuff. No. Yeah, cobras or mambas. You can pick some up down at local show, but yeah. Blows my mind. I can't. I still. It's still. We've gone to, what, four or five hot shows up here now, and it's still. I just can't believe it's real. Rhino vipers, man. Come on. Well, you, gotta love that. you guys were in Texas. But we, we didn't we didn't ever go down because it seems like uh that hot show is typically in like san antonio or houston or both i'm not sure but yeah we didn't really the, the dallas shows weren't hot most of the time there was a repticon in dallas in 2011 i think and i think that's where we met ori martin for the first time and it was a hot show and it was a really cool one but i think it got away from that and i think uh there's one in conra the herp show over there and I think Bonnie Shover and Belton, that's the San Antonio one you're talking about. I think um I think that I think those are the, the two good ones in Texas, but you know, I've 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 also seen videos of the Pennsylvania shows. It looks like you guys got some great shows up there. So if you're into yeah, if you're into that stuff, for <laughs> sure. Exactly. Well, we have gotten to the end of our two hours. So, Todd, if someone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? Um, join Rise Against Rattlesnake Roundups on Facebook. Um, you can feel free to send me a message. I'm, uh, I do check my other messages folder quite often. My email address, todd.autry43 at gmail.com, is in all my videos or 90% of my videos. YouTube's probably the best way to get me. It's probably the one I... I'm on the the most often that through that or Google Mail is probably a good way to get me. Um, I, I might usually after you do a show like this, you know, you get 50 friend requests from out of nowhere, and you just got to go through and you know, do I know this person? Is this person a bot? Is you know, so it, it takes me some time. But feel free to send me something on Messenger. Email me at my email address. It's in all my videos. Leave a comment on any of my YouTube videos because believe me, I'll talk a year off because you know trying to boost my engagement, you know, it's, you know, not, 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 not all of us can be cool and have, you know, 9,000 subscribers like Joe, you know, <laughs> hey man, we've been, we've been growing at a very slow tortoise pace for about five years. So hey, you broke a thousand, man. That's what counts. Remember that. 
And I mean, I mean, really, the beginning of that is what you facilitated, you know, for us as far as Sweetwater goes. I mean, that was really the beginning, our first big video. I remember just putting yeah. that up and getting like 50,000 views on Facebook and like five minutes, like crazy, basically about to shit my pants for lack of other words. <laughs> And, and, and then it got flagged. It was like right at us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was trying to find it just now to share it and I couldn't find it on our page. So, yeah, it's um, it's amazing that, you know, like six, seven year old kids go into this thing. But, you know, Facebook considers it, you know, inappropriate for, you know, broadcast on their platforms. I have another channel that I don't advertise a lot, but it's called Roundup Rodeo. It's all one word. And I've kind of got it set up that way to where like my vi- the videos on there won't get a lot of attention, but that's just raw footage from different roundups I've been to in the last few years and some archived footage. So um, I don't have a link handy and, um, but go out there and look at it. It's, it's out there. If you, if you want to see more about what I do or join up over at rise against uh, rattlesnake roundups, and we can definitely get that video channel to you if you want to see it. So. You heard the man go do it as well as uh, portcitypythons.com, portcitypythons on Instagram, portcitypythons on Facebook, YouTube, all that good stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening. Go subscribe to Todd on YouTube. And uh, Todd, it's been a long time coming, but it was worth it. And Joe, it's been glad to finally hook up with you, bud. It's been great visiting with both y'all. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. See you guys next week.